Okay, so on this show, we try and avoid really heavy terms like national dialogue. That's true. But sometimes there's something that's just so especially stuck in the minds of our country, you know? And last week, I think something that is always in the back of Canada's mind came to the forefront in a big way. Good evening. A word generally reserved for other countries and other conflicts has now become a headline here at home. What took place in residential schools amounts to nothing short of cultural genocide. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its long-awaited report today. 94 recommendations after hearing testimony from nearly 7,000 survivors. Most of the bodies of deceased children were never sent back to their home communities. They were denied milk in order to see what the effects would be on their bones of denying them calcium. They were guinea pigs. The survivors need to know before they leave this earth that people understand what happened and what the schools did to them. The conditions described in the Truth and Reconciliation Report don't make no kind of sense at all. But we do want to get some context. We do want to fill in some gaps. Maybe there's some people out there like me who've heard the sound bites and who've seen the hashtags, but there's still a lot of questions to be answered. We have some great guests to give us some perspective and some context to the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or the TRC. Let's get into it. I'm Andre Demise. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's best online audiobook service. One book that listeners of Canada Land Commons might like is Flight to Canada by Ishmael Reed. It's like the Salvador Dali painting of anti-slavery novels. It's sort of a, an absurdist fictional take on Uncle Tom's Cabin. If you're interested in some of the ways that Canada's history intersects with the United States, especially during and after the Civil War, this is actually a pretty good book. You can read this one or any other one in Audible's 180,000 volume library for free with a 30-day membership. Just visit audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand to get started. All right, so with us here today is Chelsea Vell. She's a Métis blogger and teacher who's all about Indigenous law, Aboriginal language education, and debunking myths. She's also a really, really, really smart person to follow on Twitter, so I recommend that you do. She's originally from Lac-Saint-Anne, Alberta, but she's joining us here today from her home in Montreal. Chelsea, welcome to Canada Land Commons. Thank you. It says on your website you do roller derby, and I feel like like, you know, putting that sticker on your helmet and like rolling around and kicking ass, that's a really good way to get prepped for being on the show. <laughs> well, I'm pregnant right now, and so I haven't done uh, roller derby for actually a couple of years, but uh, okay. but I'd like to get back into it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to sort of uh, get rid of your anger at colonialism. <laughs> Just go around <laughs> and smash into other people. Chelsea, tell us also what your roller derby name is, please. It's Louise Riel, of course, and my number was, eight, <laughs> my number was 1885. So Yes. <laughs> Louise Riel, 1885. All right, yeah. all you history buffs out there, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> also with us today is Ryan McMahon. Ryan is Anishinaabe and Métis. He's a comedian. He hosts a podcast called Red Man Laughing. He describes it as, quote, a space for independent, forward-thinking conversations, investigations, pontifications, and disruptions about the good, the bad, and the ugly between Indian country and the mainstream. And today, Ryan's pontificating and disrupting along with us from his studio in Winnipeg. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. All right. So uh, 
man, right off the hop, right? What has this past week been like for you? Oh, wow. It's been really, it's quite a roller coaster. I was watching what was going on in social media and it's, it's been the good, the bad and the ugly and a lot of ugly. Some of the articles that have come out just in the past week basically are denying residential school horrors. Conrad before Black. You get too, before you get too far, we're going to get into that in a sec. So okay, yeah, yeah. let's save that for a second because okay. I, I really want to hear your opinions on some of those specific okay. pieces. But uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Really hard to take, actually. How do you feel, Ryan, about the past week? I was in the bush. I was teaching at the uh, DeChinta uh, Bush University in the Northwest Territories. And um, I, I, I wasn't able to follow it sort of in live real time. Uh, but did follow it from afar, sort of at the end of the night, jump on the, the Wi-Fi for five or 10 minutes and, and catch what I could. But, uh, you know, in, in regards to this last week, it, it was pretty much exactly what I had thought it was going to be. Uh, a lot of um, uh, reopening of old wounds, a lot of information that we already have, and a lot of indifference on, on behalf of Canadians. And, you know, I want to preface, I, or I should add, to that comment that there are a lot of Canadians that do care. Um, and there are some that are, are starting to come around, but, uh, I would wager a paycheck on the fact that uh, most Canadians didn't pay attention at all. In most people's minds, I would think that this was treated as another sort of inconvenient, I don't know more protest where, you know, as long as it didn't affect them too much, it, it, it was fine that they went and did whatever they had to do over there. Just something to shrug your shoulders at. Yeah. yeah. Can you give us a bit of background on, what were the events that led up to the, the commission being formed in the first place? Well, the commission was formed after a successful lawsuit by uh, by residential school survivors. And the money that uh, formed the commission was actually a part of that settlement. And this is a very important point that I think Canadians need to know and understand is that the Canadian government did not pay for this. In fact, the Canadian government stalled this and fought this process the whole way through. And the money that uh, paid for this commission to even happen uh, came from the money that was uh, awarded to residential school survivors in the first place. Hold on. Residential school survivors who were paid out for their abuse put money in to get this commission put together? It's part of it's it was part of the settlement. You know, people people are supposed to get individual payments as well, but as part of the collective settlement, that that pays for the the commission as well. Yeah, so it didn't come out of it didn't come out of Joe taxpayer's pocket. So Joe taxpayer has nothing to say about this. He, you don't get to say anything about this commission. The commission was paid for by the survivors. The money was put aside uh, the commission's mandate and, you know, the, the direction the commission was given uh, came from survivors themselves. And so, in a way, this is a gift on behalf of those that uh, literally fought and died to uh, see this day come uh, this past week in, in Ottawa. We have heard so much about the residential school system in this country. But just to be clear for people who need this background, what was the residential school system. Okay, so basically the program was deliberately set out uh, to assimilate Indigenous peoples into the Canadian politic. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, well, it was just a well-meaning system. They didn't, they weren't trying to harm anybody, but uh, there's plenty of primary source documents straight from, you know, straight from the horse's mouth saying that the the actual intent here was to to, to civilize, right? To turn Indigenous peoples into non-Indigenous peoples. And it was understood really, really early on that 
the best way to do that is to remove children from the influence of their families and communities, get them by themselves so that they can be surrounded by uh, European, Canadian culture 24-7. That in, in doing that, you would, in one generation, hopefully, be able to remove the Indian from the child. It was probably the most destructive and 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 coercive system that was that was deliberately set up to uh, to advance, you know, assimilationist policies in Canada. I think another point um, uh, to add to it, though, is is that it was said that there, you know, the day schools wouldn't be as effective because the savage children would go back to savage parents you know, at 3.30, and then the process would have to start again the next day to to remove the savage from the child. And and that's where these these programs of, of stealing children and bringing them to these schools, that, that was the most effective way. So that became a major reason why uh, children were taken from their families and their communities and put in these schools in remote uh, areas. Can I just ask a question? Because I think I probably need some education on this topic, and I think some of our listeners might as well. Can you break down for us, I mean, what is the difference between, for example, Aboriginal, Métis, Indigenous, First Nations, Inuit? I know that I've used the wrong term in the past, and I wonder if it distorts some of the conversation by not being able to use the proper terms. Well, terminology shifts and changes, right? And and, and everybody disagrees. So whatever we tell you right now is not necessarily going to apply, you know, even a year down the road. Like, so Aboriginal is a generalized term that, that is used legally in Canada because it's part of the Constitution of Section 35, naming, uh, you know, First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples generally are, are, can be referred to as Aboriginal. So it's it's sort of a catch-all term, right? A lot of people don't like that term. So, you know, there's been a move away from that because it's become sort of co-opted. It's it's the nicer, gentler way of saying Indian, right? And and Indian itself, a lot of a lot of native people call themselves Indian and it's no problem within the group, but because it's so often used as a as a pejorative, it's kind of one of those those words you want to be careful with if you're not native, you know, just maybe step back, but it is still a legal term in Canada. But I think most of us would actually just prefer you refer to us by our nation name, how we call ourselves. And given that there's so many of us that, you know, that's a lot of learning. But if you if you learn the terms of the of the people in the territory you're in, that's not too hard. I mean, in Quebec, there's 11. You can learn 11 terms. That's that's not that hard. <laughs> no, I get that. So we, we heard the term cultural genocide and uh, a lot of news outlets picked up on it. A lot of columnists picked up on it. And we got some really special columns that took umbrage with the term genocide being included, even though cultural genocide is a term that's been in at least in international usage uh, since before the Nuremberg trial. So can you define for us what cultural genocide is and why we should be using the term for what happened on the residential schools? Well, okay, a lot of people, you know, they hear genocide and they think that can only mean the successful completion of a, of a policy of mass murder of an entire group. And I think that the cultural genocide is being put out there as a way to explain you don't have to actually physically destroy the entire group to commit genocide. You can actually so actively interfere with the the transmission of culture that you stop these people from being who they are. The the TRC report talks about, it, it names three types of genocide, right? It breaks it down, I think, pretty clearly, just so that people understand that there's different ways to go about it. You know, so you got physical genocide, which is actually mass killing. Um, and that happened. 
right? That wasn't that wasn't part of the residential school uh, system intention. It, it goes beyond the scope of the residential schools. But physical mass killing of Indigenous peoples happened in Canada. So Canada has committed physical genocide. You've got biological genocide, which is the, descri- the destruction of the group's reproductive capacity. You had forced sterilizations of Aboriginal women. So Canada committed biological genocide as well. But that is also outside of the scope of the residential schools. And then you have cultural genocide, right? However you split it, Canada has done every single one of those things. Now, over six years, the the commission interviewed several thousand witnesses. Almost uh, 7,000 statements were collected. We know that the commission recorded 1,300 plus hours of testimony. And that has resulted in 94 recommendations for the federal government, things that the commission says that the government needs to do now after hearing all of this testimony, after hearing the impact that residential schools had on Aboriginal people. What do you two think are the most important of these recommendations and how should we be moving forward with these recommendations? So I've, I've, I've read the recommendations and, you know, any number of them can stand out and you could you could go oh well that should be the number one priority or or this should be the number one priority and i think i think what's interesting is the the royal proclamation on reconciliation that that if there was a royal proclamation on reconciliation that it kind of forces canada's hand into the other pieces and so I'm certainly not a scholar or, or, a, or a person with, with deep uh, legal knowledge and breadth of, of information, but I, I, I can imagine the way that might trickle down into the types of changes that we need to see in curriculum, uh, the types of support that we need to replace our languages and, and put a, a real sustained effort back into language programming. We spend millions and millions of dollars on French and English in this country every year and bringing a funding level up for indigenous languages, uh, I think is a really important step. So the Royal Proclamation on Reconciliation, I think is interesting as a place to start because then the other pieces kind of fall into place. You know, I would also list child welfare, looking at the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as as big priorities. Just before we keep going, what is UNDRIP, which is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and why is it so important to this conversation? I'm not an expert in UNDRIP, but it's it's essentially a set of basic principles in which to uh, treat and respect Indigenous peoples. The government voted against supporting it, I think in 2007, finally supported it as an aspirational document in um, in 2010. And, and really, it's like a, a set of bare minimums in terms of respecting Indigenous uh, treaty rights, and not just treaty rights, but Aboriginal rights and title in Canada. So Canada signs on to this, but says with reservations, right? So there's certain parts of, of the, the UN Declaration on Indigenous Peoples that Canada says um, are incompatible with, with the Canadian system. Things like recognizing actual sovereignty or, or uh, title over land, right? Because the second you start saying this is Indian land, that, that undermines Canadian crown title. Right. So it was only accepted as an aspirational document. So so I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing here about aspirations on the part of the federal government, recommendations. 
I mean, how much weight are there to these processes when the government uses such non-committal language to talk about what they're going to do? It would be nice if we did this. Someday we'll eventually get around to acknowledging that this stuff is a problem. But for now, let's just see how it goes. Yeah, well, it's all non-binding, right? So if, if something is aspirational and non-binding, it means that if you fail to, to follow through on it, you there's no recourse. You cannot hold the government accountable for not doing something. And that, that goes back to all of these recommendations, right? Just because the TRC recommended any of these things, it means nothing until they're actually actively implemented into legislation and there's funding provided. Oh, speaking of recommendations, I mean, and further to the political response, recommendation 41 was an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women um, that even the United Nations has been calling for. And the whole crowd burst into spontaneous applause when Recommendation 41 was announced. Everybody in the room stood up. Thomas Mulcair stood up, and sitting right next to him was the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs, Bernard Valcour, who remained seated. What do you make of that? <laughs> uh, Chelsea's about ha- – she's had enough of this. I feel like she didn't even want to talk about this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's not having it. As soon as I saw the picture, I just screamed out, uh, metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And what do you make of the media coverage? I mean, there's, there's a couple of expert excerpts um, from articles that I want to read to you. Uh, the first oh, one <laughs> so bear with us I, b- please bear with me here because I I had to I hate read these on my own and I'm not of indigenous background and it put hatred in my heart having to read this stuff yeah. but uh, Conrad Black ran a piece in the National Post where he talks about the equality of of Canada's native people of the equality of Canada's indigenous people that the Europeans are not superior and then he caps off the article by saying despite everything, Even the First Nations should be grateful that the Europeans came here. There's been quite enough shameful conduct to go around, including by some of the natives. Let's all repent past wrongdoing without demeaning histrionics and hyperbole and be proud of whatever we are ethnically. A second column uh, ran, and this is by uh, Jeffrey Simpson, um, and it ran in the Globe and Mail. And it's just the the opening paragraph of this column made me think, like, there's just no need to read the rest of it because I know exactly what I'm going to hear. How often does a society need to be reminded about its mistakes even since. Repeatedly, it would seem, in the case of Canada's residential schools, for what used to be called Indians. What do you make of this media response? Oh, man. Um, (laughs) I think that these people actually need to read the summary report (laughs) because they're speaking from a position of such profound ignorance that you hesitate to even engage them because they so clearly don't understand what they're talking about. Um, the idea of locating things in the past, for one thing, is is totally absurd because this is not located in the past. This is located within the lifetime of of, of us. This is our, our, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and the impacts continue to affect us now. And in so many ways, the reason that the TRC report goes so heavily into detail in its recommendations about addressing things like healthcare, child welfare, things that you think might not have anything to do with residential schools, right? The reason it does that is because it, it the, the impacts that it continues to have today just have reverberated. In fact, we don't even really understand yet just how far it's going to go, the impacts of this. And as for Conrad Black, I it just... <laughs> <laughs> no further answer needed. What I say is that if, if somebody doesn't want to act, uh, if somebody doesn't want to do anything, then they should have to uh, publish and print out the reasons why. Um, just the same way as the TRCs laid out their summary and their report. If people want to deny this in Canada, then they should have to print it out, publish it on their website, 
and Canadians should tell us why uh, they shouldn't look at this and, and consider implementing these uh, suggestions into their lives, into their mandates, into their organizations. That's fantastic. Oh um, my God. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just let's, let's stop giving platforms to these, you know, rich white men who, who get to sit there and deny, you know, the horrors of residential schools. Yeah, that's right. It's like, uh, <laughs> listen, I'm racist. Here's why I have the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be honest. You know. And Ryan, what is the difference between reconciliation and decolonization in your view? Well, I, I think it's really important to state that, you know, decolonization doesn't just uh, pertain to Indigenous peoples um, because of what we've inherited or what we've survived through and therefore internalized in terms of politics, in terms of the way we have just kind of adopted capitalistic endeavors and look at success and achievement through a, a Western lens, the way we are, are sort of a throwaway culture and that pertains to the way we see uh, women. Uh, decolonization is about uh, really looking at the principles and the way that you live. And in this country, there is so much privilege and comfortability that we don't even have to vote. It's like, meh, you know what? I got a skidoo. I got a boat. I got a couple of trucks. I've got a cabin that I go to on the weekends. I don't. I don't care who's in charge. You know, there's a there's a level of apathy here, and privilege that is set in through the colonialism project here in Canada. So I, I, I sort of disagree. Here's how I see it. Reconciliation, like when I'm looking at reconciliation through the lens of this report, I think reconciliation, as the as the TRC sees it, would do a lot of these things. It talks about changing the curriculum. It talks about fully admitting, you know, the entire truth about relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and way beyond the scope of residential schools, by the way. You know, it's saying like, we there's still things we need to talk about. Um, it talks about establishing Indigenous languages um, as a priority and funding them. One of the big recommendations, Recommendation 52, talks about Aboriginal title. It says that, uh, you know, as it, as it is right now, when Native people want to want to assert a land claim and say, this land is ours and we have Aboriginal title, the onus is completely on Aboriginal people to prove it and and to prove that there shouldn't be limitations put on it. That, that uh, you know, even if they can prove it's their land, they, you know, we still have to say, but, you know, we should also be allowed to, to do this with it and do that with it. There's no onus on Canada to prove that it ever got that land. And Recommendation 52 flips that over and says the burden of proof should be on Canada to prove that it got that land. So I think that reconciliation can do a lot of decolonization. Where I think decolonization is different is it's centered on the land. Now, we never want to talk about this because it scares the crap out of people. But decolonization means we get the land back. That's it. We get the land back and we get to make decisions about what to do with the land. And for me, that is that is that's really what decolonization is about. Um, Chelsea's way smarter than me and she nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that to, to add to Chelsea's point, a lot of the conversations about the return of land, you know, we don't know what that looks like. And yeah, that is a, a pretty scary concept for the government of Canada. But this would be a, the greatest step in terms of reconciliation is allowing sovereign indigenous nations to decide what they wanted to do for land. So when Canadians hear native people talk about land, it's not so that we can go out and develop our own tar sands and reap mm -hmm. the benefits. It's so that we can live our cultural ways that we can uh, reenact our laws and look at all of the principles that have been lost through the land because we're all land-based peoples and our languages come from there. 
ceremonies, so therefore religion. So I think Chelsea's exactly right. It's a, it's an important step. So we talked about how important the recommendations are for the government of Canada, and I'm not really optimistic the government of Canada is going to do much. But for everyone else, what are some things that we as settlers can do? What can what can everyone else do who's not in the government, who's not a politician, to try and reconcile this issue? So I think I think the biggest thing is is um, understanding the issues. And so yes, the the TRC the full report is going to be six volumes. The summary is like what three hundred and eighty eight pages. So it's not it's not it's not a small thing, but it is fantastically written. It's it's really really accessible. It's not full of jargon. Um, I think it's it's a supremely useful document for everybody in Canada, uh, teachers, you know, recent immigrants, uh, people who've been here for like you know five six generations. I really think it's important that people read this. And the great thing about these summaries is not only do they provide a very excellent and, and understandable history of relationships here and, and the history of Canada, really, they also very clearly outline what we want. Okay, People are always asking, okay, you know, you're complaining, but what do you want? Well, here's a list. Here's literally a list of what we want. And it's very concrete. So, I think even if, if you came here with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of what's going on in the history of Canada, make this your summer reading because you will learn so much. I, I think I think Chelsea's exactly right. I joke around that like this is perfect bathroom reading. Just print a copy, put it in there. By by the end of the month, you'd have it done. Uh, then maybe not give that copy of the report to your friends. <laughs> like, maybe maybe recycle it. <laughs> but but pa- pay it forward, uh, print a copy at your home, drop it off in your friend's bathroom, and uh, take maybe a year and a half, but uh, we would pay it forward across Canada. These summaries are places for people to start, um, you know, t- to try to understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about these things. And, and then from there, they have to make up their mind. They have to make up their mind about, you know, what is important to them. This is going to be a process of unsettling. You know, when we use the term settlers, it's it's kind of, when I use it, it's tongue in cheek because I'm trying to unsettle you. I'm trying to make you uncomfortable in your place because I think really Canadians need to examine individually uh, what it means to be here in this country. And, and I'm writing a new show. I'm touring across Canada with a show called Reconciliation. And, you know, I joke in the show that um, donate your family's estate, you know, empty out your RRSPs and uh, give it to a a youth program. Like, if we're serious, how far can this go? What can reconciliation look like? And I I would say we have no idea. We have to imagine what a new relationship might be. And frankly, we've talked long enough. Ryan, how can you possibly tour across this country and make jokes about a history and about a reality shaped by that history that can be so painful. We know some of the horrible stories out of just this truth and reconciliation process, let alone our larger history. How can you joke about this stuff, man? If, if, I, if I don't write about it and joke about it, I would probably die. Mm-hmm. If our artists don't write about it, through spoken word or through music, they would probably die. Um, if we don't gather uh, ceremonially and and host powwows together for families to come together, we would die. And so, I, for me, the the work is is what I have to do, 
in order to live. And, and, you know, my work through Red Man Laughing, um, through other things that I participate in and, and I'm working towards is, is an effort to, to, to stay alive. You know, my last comedy special I did for CBC was in 2014 in Edmonton. And we had uh, three shows, three sold out shows. And the Saturday early show, there was a death threat um, that uh, somebody was going to come into the theater and shoot it up because taxpayers' money shouldn't be used uh, for Indian propaganda. So how am I going to tour across Canada? I don't know. But I'm not trying to self-aggrandize. And I I just want to add that this is the experience of many people across the country. This isn't just about me. Our youth experience the most violence across this country. Every time there's an Idle No More rally, it's really great for us big and strong adults, you know, six feet tall, 250 pounds to go pound our chest. But what happens at the malls after? What happens in the high schools after? Uh, the violence is experienced by, by, by so many across this country. Somebody wanted to come and shoot up your show because you were telling jokes about how awful Canada's been? On the taxpayer dime. <laughs> yeah, and maybe because I'm not that funny. I don't know. Maybe they're just like... <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> maybe, maybe they just really know their stuff about comedy and like, this guy's a hack. Get him out of here. <laughs> the tough business you're in, man. Yeah. We know it's not easy to speak about, but you've both done it really eloquently. Thanks for coming on Canada Land Commons with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. If you'd like to understand what's contained inside the Truth and Reconciliation Report, we'll add a link to it on the Canada Land website. And if you want to find us on Twitter, my handle is at Andre Demise. And I'm at Desmond Cole. You can also follow Canada Land Commons on Twitter by searching Canada Land Commons and just hit up the first search results you find. Shout out goes to our producer, Andrew Norton, who's actually going to be leaving us in a couple of weeks. We love you, Andrew. We, we really you appreciate much. your contributions to this show. Thanks also this week to Katie Jensen and to Imogen Burchard, who is going to be joining us as a new producer for Canada Land Commons. The music this week was produced by Nathan Burley, and you can find the Canada Land website at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. So if you like Canada Land Commons and you want us to stick around, please pitch in. Go to patreon.com slash canadaland. And if you like what you hear on the episodes, please show us some love. Wherever you subscribe to your podcast, give us a nice five-star rating. Tweet about this show. Talk about this show with your friends, your family, your teachers, your students. The next Canada Land Shortcuts is going to be up on Thursday, and Canada Land Commons is back next week, Tuesday. Peace out, everybody. Yeah, it's that's uh, chubby, raspy lung syndrome. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.